You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I'm Ruthie Fierberg, and this is Why We Theater. The intersection of theater and social justice, this podcast digs into today's most thought-provoking and urgent onstage works with the artists who made them and real-world experts who advise us on how we can create impactful change in our offstage lives. After all, that is why we theater. Today, we welcome director Annie Tipp and a panel of experts to dig into the musical Octet. For those of you who haven't seen the show... As usual, a brief primer. The acapella chamber musical gathers eight people in a meeting for internet addicts where each song serves as a share of sorts. You can listen to the live album on Spotify. This episode focuses on internet addiction, but does include discussions of other addictions as well as a mention of eating disorders for those who may be sensitive to this content. I am so excited today to talk about the brand new musical Octet, which, by the way, newsflash, got a slew of Drama Desk nominations in addition to its Lucille Lortel nominations. It premiered off-Broadway at the Signature Center uh, here in Manhattan, and I was immediately obsessed with it. It touches on such an American moment, and we are so grateful that director Annie Tipp is here today to talk to us about it. Annie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ruthie. And oh my gosh, a a panelist of experts is, (laughs) this is something I've never been a part of. So I'm, I'm truly, I'm like humbled and I, I can't wait to discuss this show again. It's been, it's been a beat. Yeah. Well, we're excited to get into it with you. And I know that you and uh, Dave Malloy, the book writer, composer, lyricist did a lot of work on this one to get the world premiere out to us. So um, let's just dive right in. I know that you really um, built this from the ground up with Dave and because there's this uh, interview on the Signature Center website where you revealed that he came to you with no music and just text. And I was like, but the show is basically sung through, like it's almost a song cycle. So what was the idea that Dave presented to you? What was the text in that very early moment? Well, I should say by, by no music, you know, there is at any time, uh, seven to 15 different shows that are percolating in Dave's head. So the music exists, but maybe it hasn't yet, you know, permeated our world. Um, and 
Um, he had been working on the show not for too long, but I want to say maybe a year, maybe two years prior. And um, he and I had done a show together a few years before called Ghost Quartet. And when right. I joined that project, uh, he and the ensemble, uh, the the four band members, the, sh- the show was mostly complete. We added a few songs in that process. But with this, it was like this unbelievable, emotional, dense brilliant, sprawling um, manuscript of text that really was not yet concerned with structure, but was concerned with ideas and beginning to develop um, human beings. Mm -hmm. And the beautiful thing, the last thing I'll say, or one of many things I'll say about Dave's beautiful writing is that so much of what um, comes to life when he sets his language to music is um, the true humanism of each character he creates. Mm -hmm. So all of the ideas are on the page, but once he started setting each character of which there are eight, um, to music, um, and additionally, once we cast those, cast those actors, uh, the show took on a new emotional layer that, um, really shook me to my core. Why did he want to write about, internet addiction and technology addiction at this moment? Like what was it happening right now? And what was happening right now that you felt it was the right time for you to lend your perspective to it as well? I think, I mean, there are a number of intellectual curiosities that Dave has. And if you have a chance to look at the the bibliography of the research that he's done, the online debates that he's watched, the art, the film, uh, there's so much swirling around that makes this big web of um, interests and ideas, but if, but the show is ultimately extremely personal and relatable um, in that Dave is, is sharing with us his own relationship to addiction and he's creating, he's created a piece that I feel like anyone would, you know, if you don't live in a barn in the forest with no internet, like you have a relationship to the piece. Right. And, find your way in. Um, I I do feel that the piece speaks for itself in terms of its relevance in that the internet and our relationship to technology feels like it's only becoming more dominant. But what I feel like makes it especially potent is the element of spirituality. And what I feel like is this new trend towards a seeking of an alternate form of spirituality to counterbalance the intense, uh, presence of technology in our lives, which is why there's a thread of um, one of the characters' interest in tarot. There's just yes. one element of, of, of alternative spirituality that um, people are turning to as a counterbalance or mm-hmm. just as a balance. Um, yeah, I, I feel like it's, I, yeah, I think about the piece every day. It, 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 it makes me reflect on my life every day. So I want to go to that. I, I didn't even really notice it until after and really digging into my playbill, actually, um, (laughs) that each character, so you have these eight characters in the octet who sit down in a circle and complete essentially what are shares in this, um, you know, support group for addicts. And what I found so interesting was that each of those characters is also, um, 
the counterpoint for one of these tarot cards and, and like kind of the character on the tarot card. And I didn't even realize I had wondered for so long, like where your playbill art came from and like, who is that medieval character? And then I was like, Oh, I figured it out. It's the fool tarot card who is like the fool represents like about to go on a journey. And I'm like, Oh God, that's so brilliant. So like, when did the tarot theme come into play as this way to like thread the characters together, thread their problems together? Yeah, I, I think when you mentioned uh, Dave and I first meeting and uh, kind of reading through that big chunk of text, Dave knew that tarot in some way would be a part of the show. And he essentially used a tarot deck to intuit the show. I mean, he, wow. he went the deck and I think he pulled cards and it was an experiment in structure and a really thrilling one that paid off because the show in a lot of ways, it doesn't have a, maybe a traditionally recognizable musical theater structure. Right. Um, it's not as narrative as some other beginning, middle end things are, yeah. but it has the structure of, um, it has the structure of a meeting for addicts. Yeah. Um, you, when you come together, Words are spoken by the group as a whole. Individual people share. There's a coffee break. Um, the meeting gets a little harder, gets a little darker. We leave reality. And then at the end of the meeting, um, eight people look each other in the eyes and try to commit to being present with each other while they're here with each other. Um, so I think tarot was both a structural experiment and it also it, it lives beautifully within the thematic fabric of the show in terms of finding something to believe in, something to guide you in your darkest moments, which for yeah. one character in the show, Velma, it is her North Star. It is the only thing she feels like she can trust or, or rely on. Mm-hmm. Which I love too about the show that it's not one-sided. It's not there is only darkness here. There is only badness here. It's, you know, the last solo song is this woman singing about how she found herself and she found her own beauty reflected back to her in the internet. And you're like, okay, so, you know, how do we balance this thing? Which we'll definitely get into. I I mean, speaking about Velma in particular, um, there's that moment in the coffee break where she says to Henry, whose song was candy and all about the games that he is addicted to. Um, she says, oh, so you're a recreational. And she kind of divides it up into like, there's recreational, there's financial, there's social, there's sexual, and there's informational internet addicts, and they bleed into each other. But I'm wondering, like, where did those categories come from? How did they correspond with the tarot characters? And like, how did you guys decide what kinds of shares, what kinds of addictions you wanted each of these people to be dealing with? I think uh, that's a great question. I feel like the the presence of Velma reading off the different kinds of addiction is a is a kind of it's it's a meta revelation of doing research for this show, right? Mm-hmm. So, in order to research addiction, Dave googled addiction and internet addiction and has one of his characters in the show um, who is recognizing in herself um, maybe a negative dependence on her online relationships, also obsessively going into the wormhole of 
internet research, which mm-hmm. is like 4,000 tabs open on your computer, reading a thousand things at once. Right before I got on this call, I was doing the same thing. I was like, oh, I should, I should remind myself of that online debate that Dave was watching with the atheist and the famous theologian. And I feel like it was much harder for us to find information about this type of addiction, mm-hmm. much easier to find substance addiction. Um, we we read a lot about restart actually um hillary so i'm excited to talk more about that but um yes so there's that element and then the characters um yeah each character represents a different addiction and i guess all i can say on that is that there's like any great composer so much of the personal lives in all of those characters the personal and the universal so i i they're they all represent a different lane Yeah, I found it really interesting that like where you guys even start, right? Like the first song is this very intense, um, you know, refresh about social media and the ego surfing. And I think that that's almost like the most pervasive in our lives. But then you guys, you know, stay a little lighter and upbeat with gaming. And then it continues to go towards, you know, you you have everything from – you know, online communities and chat rooms to dating apps. And it really seemed to hit a whole bunch of pockets. But of course, there are, you know, there are even more that you could have touched on. So I guess I'm wondering, like, how that honing process went. And like, was it clear from the beginning that each person would have one thing? Or was that something that happened in the room with these actors? Uh, no, I think I think it came to be before we had performers in the room. The mm-hmm. songs were certainly deepened and enhanced by conversations with the performers. But uh, I think especially with the narrowing down of different characters with tarot cards, it felt structurally right that each person, I mean, d- different characters in the show are, they're not just dealing with one addiction, they're dealing with multiple addictions, but it felt right um, I think for Dave to have each person focus on a different element so that the audience would have the opportunity to go fully into someone's world for the three to 10 minutes that each song allows. Mm-hmm. And as you, um, uh, really smartly observed, the show starts in a place that I feel like is quite universal, you know, a lot of us have social media presences. We get dependent on them a lot. Anyone could yep. understand it. a game addiction if you ride the subway. Completely. And as the show goes on, um, I think we go a little more into the the niche corners of the internet, um, corners that not all of us see or are familiar with, um, corners of QAnon, corners of Reddit, um, corners that maybe to a more general audience feel um, dark, violent, upsetting, nonsensical. Um, yeah, like the dark and, Yeah. So trying to create somewhat of a space without judgment where we can go down those wormholes and see the toll uh, that those um, corners of the internet and their devices have taken on those people. Dave had said in an interview that he he believes in writing the thing that scares you most, which is often the thing that scares us all. And so I'm wondering too, like what were some of your own emotions surrounding technology that came up in this process that you wanted to be sure to capture, not just the story of this person or the story of X type of addiction, but emotionally? Mm. 
how you wanted to communicate that feeling to the audience. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's also a beautiful question. Um, for me personally, I think when I find myself most vulnerable, most in need of validation, most in need of something to hold to make me feel safe, I feel (laughs) time flying by and it causes in me a kind of physical, uh, sickness that a lot of people have reflected to me in the past few weeks multiple people I talked to this week have said, you know, I'm on Zoom calls 12 hours a day and I'm starting to feel nauseous and dizzy. And I'm starting to feel like the screen world is now my world. Um, and my my own personal experience with my screens and the devices and keeping up a personality that lives online is that I I sometimes feel like my my soul is being fractured into pieces. Mm. At at the same time, I think Dave has created something so remarkably um, optimistic and hopeful. Um, And something that so draws me to this piece is just the idea that um, we're not necessarily spiraling towards this more realistic society that um, isolates people, but that people want to connect. People People want to be with other people and look each other in the eyes and um, be present for each other and just feel like they can be present in any given moment. Yeah. Yeah. I also, I mean, I was listening to another interview that you did and I I found it so interesting that you came out of the process like really appreciating – the good of technology, even though you had kind of immersed yourself in the most extreme case of the bad of technology. And I found that to be like just a fascinating revelation on your part. Yeah, it it's doubly clear to me now, um, having just complained about being on Zoom all the time. Uh, I, did buy a, I did buy a subscription to it and I'm very grateful to it. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I... I look at people hold, holding phones up to windows in nursing homes, connecting family members to yes. people who can't be with each other. And you have to balance the remarkable um, the remarkable good and the remarkable connection um, that is possible. Um, and I think if anything I took out of it, um, what is balance for any given person? Mm-hmm. And it can be relative to that person, but what is balance? Is it important for you? If so, what structures do you create in your life so that you can participate in society, which is increasingly reliant on technology and also make space to look at trees and have a conversation with someone without touching your phone in your pocket? Um, nothing is bad or good or light and dark. It's 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 all balance. Absolutely. I mean, I... And before we welcome our our experts in, I am wondering about audience reaction um, and how, if there were any people you encountered who spoke to you either during a talk back or just you know general reaction in the in the ethos um, that made you feel like you had done what you mm-hmm. came to do. Yes, um, previews, um, which is the period of a play where the play is still changing, but audiences are coming. It is exhilarating and humiliating at the same time. Um, That was a time when I had a lot of 
audience interaction. I have to say I had a lot of bias walking into this, particularly around age. I think I assumed that very young people would come to this show very resistant to it because it is critical of the internet. And I think I also had bias towards um, audience members older than myself, older than my parents, feeling like they would not relate to the show because it's so heavily about technology. I was mm-hmm. completely wrong. I, I was completely wrong at every turn in terms of my assumptions <laughs> um, and was deeply moved by, you know, that the signature has um, an audience base that uh, like- It's really vast. The, the, it's really vast, but in previews, the bulk of our audience were people over 60, over 70. And- right. I was so thrilled by their response, some of it critical, some of it extremely um, excited and emotional. Um, But I think the thing that united everyone, which I I should not fail to mention, is people were universally blown away by the the musicality and the skill of the cast. Absolutely. Who who they just, I mean, Dave's brilliance combined with this group of true musicians and the music director or Matias who led them whether you liked the show or you didn't understand it or you hated it, I think there was a universal feeling like, wow, uh, that was impressive. I was going to say the technical prowess that those eight people display in the musicality of doing a completely acapella musical and that every song took on such a different style of music was wildly impressive. And there is a reason that you guys have won that best ensemble award from the drama desk. So very deserved. Yeah. I'm I'm that was a that was a really bright spot on a kind yeah. of gloomy day, which I yeah. believe we had tornado warnings in New York. So Well there you go. <laughs> every, every, every day an adventure here. So um Speaking of uniting people and and having just such a vast um, you know demographic that this appeals to, I'm so excited to bring in our esteemed panel of experts. We have three people joining us today who live on the spectrum of neuroscience and psychology and technology. So I want to introduce each of them to you. Um, we have Dr. Mary Helen Imordino Yang, who is a neuroscientist, psychologist, and a former teacher who conducts research about the science of social emotion, self-awareness, and more at uh, USC Rossier. I'm so excited to have you here, Mary Helen. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We have Dr. Hillary Cash, who is the co-founder and chief clinical director at Restart, which you mentioned, Annie, the first uh, U.S. treatment program for internet gaming disorder and other types of technology addiction. Thank you, Hillary, for coming. My pleasure. I love that we're all tuning in from different places. (laughs) And then we have Daphne LaRose, who is the senior software engineer and technical lead manager on Pokemon Go at Niantic, Inc. Um, So thrilled to have you. Also, side note, she was my college roommate, and she is a brilliant (laughs) old Barnard woman um, here on her own behalf today. So thank you, all three of you, for being here. I'm so excited to dig into this. Me too. This really is thrilling for me. I, I'm, I'm so excited to hear professionals 
correct anything I've said wrong as well. (laughs) (laughs) I I want to start with what we actually know about how technology, specifically the internet, affects our brain and its functioning. So I'm wondering, Mary Helen, if you can start with us about like, what do we know, which I know is not as much as we think we would at this point. Yeah. Um, let me just start by, by saying that I don't specifically study technology. I study how people feel, how people mm-hmm. create stories, how people create experience. And I, I mean that in a kind of active way, how we come to be aware of what we consider to be real. Um, and the neurological and psychophysiological, the mechanisms in our bodies and in our guts, right? What somebody mentioned, feeling nauseous, right? Um, that are co-opted at the level of the brain and uh, are the platform on which we construct psychological experience. Um, And so what we've been learning, not just in my lab, but in labs across the world, is how very um, interdependent our brains and our bodies are in the one hand, and how our embodied mechanisms for survival, things like Uh, the platform in our brain that allows us to feel the beating of our heart and call that to conscious awareness. If you uh, are running up a set of stairs, for example, or if you get frightened um, or you're excited, um, the the platform in our mind that allows us to um, feel the digestion of our lunch and, you know, kind of what's going on inside Mm -hmm. this is also the platform on which we construct a sense of self and agency. Um, and it's, uh, it's used both um, to be able to kind of monitor what's going on physiologically inside your body. And simultaneously, it's also engaged in this kind of agentic storytelling and steering our attention into and out of the world. So it turns out to be a kind of pivot point in the brain. We can almost think about these platforms as like the post in the middle of a, of a seesaw, Right. And it's tipping our attention either out into the world. So we are watching stuff coming at us, right? Which, the, which addiction to the internet especially is very much uh, utilizing and capitalizing on or tipping us into this internal place where we construct kind of an awareness of our, of our own internal embodied conscious self and tell sort of stories to ourselves and feel emotions and build beliefs and values about things that are by their very nature transcendent of the here and now. They're not things that you can observe or directly measure or perceive in the current context. The addiction becomes kind of the patterning of our neurobiology into an outward facing attention, um, you know, like reward seeking mode, information seeking mode and a more um, internally focused kind of awareness and storytelling. And what we think might be happening is that we're almost training up a biological sort of self that is dependent upon these, this gathering. And what the downside of that is, is that Seesaw doesn't tip the other way. When it does, there's nothing there. There's no depth of experience to go on. People feel empty and sort of hollow and they tip back out in search because they are really leveraging off of fundamental attentional and self-relevant mechanisms for conjuring a sense of agency and awareness and narrative about who we are and, and where we are and what is real. So it's like the same. So you're saying we have... Um, 
one thing in our brain that is navigating two different kinds of realities, the reality we're receiving from the external world and the reality that we're creating based on that external world of, you know, the sense of self, who we are, what our values are. What we do as a species is we construct meaning, right? Mm -hmm. We're not uh, like other animals who just sort of engage and uh, build action patterns to accommodate the world. We are unique in that we are able to leverage the mechanisms of consciousness and internal visceral somatosensation, right? Literally the same platforms that fuel our guts. And we use those in these cognitive elaborative ways to construct stories about mm-hmm. belief and about reality. Our cultural learning is tuned for us to start to internalize and synchronize our patterns of meaning making and, and uh, building of beliefs and building of self-awareness over time. And that's how we construct ourselves. You know, it's really hard to find research about how technology is impacting brain structure, but there is research, which I'm sure, Annie, you guys must have come across, about how it um, it affects cognition, meaning how we're thinking and how brain processes combine to do what we consider to be, quote, thinking, and that like because we do all of this shallow information processing that we're not doing that deeper meaning reflection that Mary Helen you're talking about because of rapid attention shifting and having those 4000 tabs open Annie like you were talking about and I think all of us know that feeling of having 4000 tabs open in the brain that like the more multitasking we do the it's linked to more distractibility and um less Uh, control of our executive functions, which is like, you know, decision making and things like that. And Hillary, I'm wondering if you can talk about that a little bit, like in the healthy brain versus the addicted brains of people that you treat, because in the musical, like it's even described as the neural pathways are widening. And there's just like thinking of our brains almost as like the gullet that can't widen enough to consume all of this information. And I'm wondering, like, is that an accurate metaphor? Well, we talk about the neural net uh, being very influenced and and basically wired together by experience. And so if, if for instance, in the clients that we work with who are addicted to the Internet, to various aspects of the of the Internet, they are. their brains are very adapted for all of that time that they have spent on the internet. And so the, and, and their brains, depending on how old they were when they started all this sort of overuse of the internet uh, is when, and to the degree that they overused it is going to really determine how deeply ingrained that addicted neural net is Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the result of too much time spent online means not enough time spent in so many other activities um, that are healthy. And mm-hmm. so, you know, we were, Annie was talking about balance and the effort to, you know, recognition that really it's all about balance. And indeed, it is all about balance. And so from our point of view and in, in the treatment of the clients that we work with it's about if you've 
grown up mostly online playing video games and looking at porn and uh, info seeking and, you know, whatever else you've been doing, and you haven't been developing your skills, uh, your communication skills, your social skills, your physical skills, your physical activity skills, um, and, and so forth, then you're just at a great disadvantage. And there's an awful lot of, I mean, thank goodness the brain is as plastic as it is. You know, Mary Helen is talking about the plasticity of the brain and thank goodness for that, because that then allows somebody who's 16 years old or 26 years old, they still can start to build a, build out a different neural net. Right. You can adapt to the world yeah. as it changes. I mean, I think one yeah. of the, <laughs> I think of sometimes the Disney movie um, Inside Out when they have like the, as memories, you know, there are these orbs of memories and they're like cleaning them out, cleaning out the shelves of like <laughs> uh, phone numbers don't need those anymore because we store those phone numbers in our phone. But maybe those shelves are now taken up by passwords because we need to remember new things, that it's it's plastic in that way. On the other hand, there is obviously a lot to love about technology. So I'm wondering, Daphne, since you work in tech, what is it that you love about the technology industry and gaming in particular? Not only did I grow up playing games, but I also grew up as a storyteller and like as a writer. And so creating worlds was something I always loved doing, creating characters and um, imagining like fantastical situations and all sorts of, like I really enjoyed that. And I think games provide a really wonderful opportunity to take that a step further where like you're not only creating and building a world and, you know, building characters and all of that, but you're giving players an opportunity to actively interact in that world and to therefore like create their own stories, create their own narratives that they can then like apply to their own lives or to their own experience. And then there's of course important things you've done outside of gaming, like during your time at Apple. You know, I'm really proud to be able to say things like, you know, I wrote the I wrote the logic. I was part of the team of people that like brought that that made the rainbow flag a thing or that like you know, made the black female scientist emoji a thing. Like, um, it's, it's really, it's, it feels like an honor to be able to, to say that I contributed to that. Right. It's the little things that in technology we can do for representation and for visibility. I think one of the things that was profound about the musical, Annie, like you were saying, is that it was really relatable to so many people and that we all kind of saw ourselves in one of these characters, in each of these characters. And I, I did kind of feel personally when I left, I was like, oh man, it feels like we're all addicted. Hillary, is that true? Are there degrees of addiction? Could we all be quote a little addicted or is there truly a binary of like, you're either addicted or you're overusing but not addicted. 
Um, this is debated. <laughs> there are criteria that have been proposed by the American Psychiatric Association. And if you meet five out of nine criteria, then you have met the criteria for addiction. Um, the World Health Organization's definition is much looser. It, you know, it basically has to do with if you're experience a lot of, uh, experiencing a lot of negative consequences um, and, and you're obsessed, then you're probably addic addicted. So that's a very broad kind of definition. And mm -hmm. my own personal view is that, uh, and, and I know that there are growing numbers of people who think in terms of mild to severe addiction. And so mm -hmm. I do think many people probably fall into that category of mildly addicted, which just means their brains have made an adaptation to the overstimulation that they've been giving themselves with, uh, you know, their online activities on their phone or whatever, so that if they cut it off for a day, for a weekend, they might go through a period of withdrawal while their brains are sort of coming back to normal functioning, bringing back the, you know, bringing back the receptors to pick up normal levels of uh, those neurochemicals. I mm -hmm. think, and, and Mary Helen, who knows so much more about the brain than I do, can, <laughs> can confirm or correct that. But I think that's the basic thing that's going on. And so I think a lot of people would experience a little bit of withdrawal if they didn't have access to their devices for a day, a weekend, a week. And then they would, by the time the, that withdrawal was finished, they would actually be feeling quite good. And they would, mm -hmm. you know, they'd be feeling good. They'd be feeling very functional. They'd be feeling free, uh, you know, free of the uh, the tyranny yeah. of their devices. Well, I'm, personally, when I go on vacation, I turn off my phone. My phone goes on airplane mode from the second I go on the airplane until I get back on the airplane to come home. I use it as a camera <laughs> only. If I wasn't using it as a camera, I wouldn't even take it with me. Um, and I know that there is this turn to baseline for me mentally, emotionally, even physically, like my body changes when I'm on vacation. And it's not, I mean, not necessarily because I'm working out more. Um, and I, I think too, and about like a lot of the natural imagery that's in the, the play with the moon or, um, the idea of the forest, the idea of one day we'll return to the field. And I'm wondering, like, is there a world, like, what do we think? Is there a world where we can have it all? And like, where does the balance between the natural world and the virtual world come in? And I will open that to the room. Well, I do want to make a comment, which is that, the so many of the people that I work with, really, when they arrive, they don't care at all about the natural world. They have mm -hmm. lived interior lives in front of a screen. And not all of them, of course, I'm just painting with a broad stroke. But so many of them have just don't have an interest in, in sort of the outside world, outside of their, their little space in front of a computer. And part of what is really fun to watch is them sort of like awakening to the wonder mm -hmm. of the natural world and working with animals and enjoying the cats and going for hikes and splashing through a river and, you know, things like that. 
And so it seems to me that if we are to have it all, like you're saying, that there, we do have to somehow get a handle on this thing called balance so that people will care about mm-hmm. the world enough mm-hmm. to preserve it, you know, reclaim it and preserve it. Yeah. Daphne, will- you were going to add? Yeah. So I actually think that this is a really great um, segue to the work that Niantic has done in in trying to achieve this um, in our own way. Right. And so, you know, when you think of a game like Pokemon Go um, or any of our other titles that what I really appreciate about working at this company is the fact that our chief mission really revolves around getting people to exercise, to socialize with each other in real life and to adventure together, right? And so, um, you know, I'm not saying that what, what we do and how we do it is perfect, but I am saying that it is a core part of how we operate as a company and, and the kinds of games that we decide to put out. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, we have found in one way, at least, uh, an example of how to bridge that gap um, between technology and the real world. And like something that I think about just for myself a lot is, um, it's kind of ironic that like, I'm a senior software engineer who lives out in the in Silicon Valley and works in Silicon Valley, but I am incredibly annoyed with how much we rely on tech. <laughs> And so it's like, that seems like a direct contradiction given what I do for a living. Um, But but the reason why, right, is because I am someone who really values that balance, who really values like, um, you know, interacting with the world still, finding room for connection. And I, I believe that, you know, that the goal for, for tech really should be to be a tool, not the end all be all, but a, a tool that we use to augment, augment the human experience. And so mm-hmm. like tech should not like trap you to a screen. What it should do instead is augment your ability as a human to engage in real life, right? And so mm-hmm. like my interest tend to align with platforms and with games and with services, et cetera, et cetera, in tech that allow people to um, have their human experience be augmented by the whatever tool, whatever tech that they're mm-hmm. using at that point in time. Yeah. And so like mm-hmm. anything that I feel, you know, traps people, locks people in, I think just, I, I for me personally, it doesn't align with my moral code. And I don't think that it's necessarily um, the best approach for us moving forward and Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Yeah. For contributing to our society. And Annie, there's that line in the show that I love that I think it's Velma who says, quote, when we say in real life, this is a lie to protect us. It is all real. It is all real life. And I find that so fascinating. And I have to imagine, like I said, that the integration of the natural imagery while talking about this tech was intentional, particularly given that moment of like, everything is actually real. By calling it fake, you diminish it when it is actually such a huge component of real life. Yeah, it's still on the clock. You know, it's, it's, it's all the same all the same timeline. Yeah. If you believe that time functions that way. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but I love, uh, Daphne, I, I just love the way you have described these games. I've never thought of them as that. Um, and even just hearing you speak and hearing, um, hearing Hillary speak, it makes me think about, it makes me think about something specific to internet addiction, which maybe, um, I don't want to speak out of turn, but maybe, yeah, is different from other addictions in that for other addictions, uh, when you are seeking to, um, seeking to recover, it's possible that abstinence from that Mm -hmm. addiction is the best way forward for you. And with internet and device addiction, um, I just, the, our world, um, for the most part, um, doesn't look like that. that. Yeah. You mentioned that this addiction is a little more akin to an eating disorder and that it's mm-hmm. rethinking the relationship with uh, with the trigger rather than going cold turkey, you know, as other addicts can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in this and because of this, I think it actually becomes a much more difficult addiction to recover from. Um, eating disorders are very difficult to recover from <laughs> because, you know, you're always faced with food. And in the same way, this is very difficult as well. So you sit down at your computer and or pick up your phone. And if you're an addict, it's it, it, at least in early recovery, you are going to be triggered, which mm-hmm. means you're going to feel a craving to fall back into the old addictive patterns. And so right. learning how to manage that is just really tough. Right. What I would add to that, though, is that I think there's an opportunity there for technology to take on some of that responsibility. Because I think about, um, I think about what Dr. Mary Helen said, uh, which I was really touched by. Oh my god! And I really want to dig more into your research, but um, about this concept of the the seesaw metaphor, right? Of like looking to the external, looking out, while Um, And using that information to then go back and look in and how like technology enables us to focus more on the looking out rather than the looking in. And what if tech as an industry and if what if these platforms took on more of the responsibility of like allowing people to create that balance for themselves? So like 
providing them the space to look out, but then also finding different ways to encourage them to then look back in and like yeah. what kind of role can technology play in, in like literally in the code, right? Like what kind mm-hmm. of code could I write tomorrow that can allow a user to do that? Yeah, that's the huge question. That's right, Daphne. I think that's so cool. Mm-hmm. Mary Helen, I love your articulation of it. And this is also why I like the the parallel to um, food and and an eating disorder as the internet and and internet addiction, you know, in terms of familiarity, it we have more jargon around eating disorders. But Mary Helen, you said, you know, it's it's how we're using the tools, not the tools themselves. Mm-hmm. And in the same way with an eating disorder, like food is not the enemy. It's the relationship to food. In fact, mm-hmm. food is obviously quite necessary for survival. And in our current world, technology is seemingly just as necessary, but it's our relationship to it that we really need to focus on. Um, Well, one of the things that I don't know if you came across, Annie, in your research, the work uh, by Richard Freed, the letter uh, that Richard Freed sent and many of us signed, and it was a letter to the American Psychological Association, and essentially saying, we as psychologists take a vow to do no harm. And yet, many of us are hired by the in the tech industry to create as addictive uh, mm-hmm. applications as possible. And that is, by its definition, doing harm. And particularly mm-hmm. when you're targeting children. Uh, in in right. what your you know in in your applications, and um, so I love that Daphne brought up the whole question of responsibility because I yeah. absolutely think that the tech industry has got to face their social responsibility. And it sounds Daphne like you work at a place that does take this seriously, and yet so many places I think do not. So yeah, I Daphne, I want up. to expand on that because what you had told me in our previous conversations was really fascinating. Yeah, so, um, and, uh, you know, just to clarify, I'm, I'm speaking more so in terms of how I interpret Niantic operating from, you know, just my interpretation of it being an employee there. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, from what I see and from what, from even just the culture of the the company and my coworkers and what we're building every day, like there is a very strong focus on continually getting our players to go out and re-engage with the world. And even now with given the COVID-19 situation, right? Like our relationship to the world is changing and that's changing for everyone. And like, what does it mean now to re-engage with the physical world when we're not allowed to leave our houses and we're mm-hmm. social distancing, right? right. Um, yeah. But these are challenges that we're actively taking on. And, you know, we're not out here trying to make the next psychologically addictive game that will top the app store. We're out here trying to help people become better people in whatever mm-hmm. way that they see fit, right? And for us, we believe that that starts with socially engaging, engaging in real life. It, it starts with, you know, experiencing nature. We have a really beautiful um, community base uh, We where we actually hold events worldwide where we get our players to pick up trash and to like 
walk through parks together again under non-COVID-19 circumstances but um you know we, we actually support our players in going out and making the world a better place and I I think that you know Niantic has created a really beautiful blueprint of what this could look like if more technology companies and more game companies actively took that responsibility on yeah. And you had mentioned too that you think that there is an onus on tech developers and people who work in this space to consider the moral and ethical implications of the products they're making, even if they're making something for good, to then hypothesize and think right. forward to um, the ways in which it could be used for bad and circumventing those before they happen. As much as possible, for sure. Because like something that I see a lot, um, and and this is just from my my ten years of being in the field, right? Is that like the the stereotype, which generally tends to happen a lot, right? Is that like you know you have the the programmer person who has this like really cool idea, right? And so they go out, they build the thing. And the focus is really on like the details of the thing. Like I really wanted to see, bring this thing to fruition. I want to see how it works. I want to see if it's even possible. Um, and that's all well and good. But then the, the problem that I often see, right, is that like the questions around, okay, but big picture though, <laughs> like one, did humanity really need this? And then also two, like, how can this be used in ways that weren't intended? And I, I have often seen even developers with the best of intentions making work, and this is beyond Niantic, right? But like developers with the best of intentions who create work that end up having like very serious unintended consequences that just weren't considered beforehand. Now, granted, it's not always possible, obviously, to predict that ahead of time. There are a lot of unknown unknowns, and we are all human at the end of the day. So I can't predict what you know how someone will use my technology twenty years from now. But I do think that you know there is value in discourse around exactly this. There's value in bringing in people who aren't just like techies, quote unquote, right? But like having a more liberal arts influence, a more like well-rounded influence, a more humanities influence where like we can actually have those kinds of conversations where it's like the tech person isn't just in isolation making tech for tech's sake, but we're collaborating with people of all, you know, minds and influences similar to this conversation, right? Where it's like we can pull from here and there to make sure that everything's being considered. Right. I mean, I think we were saying that like, it's about trusting the maker and trusting the manufacturer that like exactly. when a car comes off the line, we know that it is intended to get you from point A to point B, but that doesn't mean that crashes <laughs> are avoidable completely. So we have airbags. And when we find out that like someone at the top knew about a, you know, a flaw in the manufacturing of said airbags, not only were there the tangible consequences of like injury and, and lost life, but there is the consequence of the loss of trust because we trusted you to make something safe. And I think that there is a good parallel yeah. there and being able to trust our tech manufacturers that you are making things with our safety in mind. And that means, you know, mental, emotional, and physical. 
Yeah, and I think that a lot of that has to do with the fact that, like, sometimes we're operating in isolation. Right. Well, well, so speaking of that, like, I think, you know, you were talking about how Pokemon Go, like, there's a big um, goal to get everyone outside of themselves and to get socializing. And I think the internet is such a paradox because we talk about this all the time, how we're more connected than ever, and yet we feel more disconnection. Mm-hmm. And maybe, Mary Helen, you can speak to, like, where does that feeling come from? And what are the ways in which you hope technology can actually help foster connection? Yeah, I think that's the, the like million dollar question, really. I mean, there's, I, I think a couple of things. I, I totally endorse what, what Daphne is saying and, and also think that we are, because this, this kind of uh, tool is so new, we don't really fully understand how it's going to work. And human beings mm-hmm. are incredibly adaptable and we're organic, right? So we can, we can shift the way our brains develop, the way we feel, the way we construct reality based on the way in which we interact with the world, right? And so if we mm-hmm. shift the way we interact with the world, things are going to happen. Does that mean it's all bad? Of course not, right? But it means that we really need to be watching closely. So that's one thing. Um, and, you know, I, th- I think in addition to just trying to understand more what's going on, we really need to think in the big picture about what's our goal as a species? Who do we strive to be, right? What kinds of people do we want to feel like? Do we want to interact like? Do we want to think like? What are the kinds of dispositions that we value? And then backpedal and, you know, and, and reverse engineer what kinds of tools what enable those ends, right? Which sounds a lot like what Daphne and her colleagues are thinking about. Um, and I, I think especially as, uh, as, as Hillary pointed out, we need to be thinking about young people who are just incredibly plastic and dependent upon the quality of their relationships to grow themselves. They're organizing that brain development for the first time. We really need to wake up and look around and, and, and watch what we're doing and then use it for good. Well, I think it's also, you know, in thinking of it as a tool, you know, it wasn't until you first said that, that it's, it's not the tool, it's how we're using the tool. And then that makes me think of things like literally the hammers and the nails of like, okay, that was built those were created to build things. Of course, people have been known to use hammers to smash people's skulls in, but like that's not the, right. Like that's not the good way. Um, or, or you know, the tool. I think of like the tool of the printing press as like we created that because we wanted to be able to communicate more uniformly and more quickly and more broadly. And I think specifically the internet is, you know, the modern printing press. And it's like, let's return to that original idea and think like, is this aligned with that goal? I mean, I also think one of the interesting questions that the musical brings up is um, the idea of how, like, are we wired to handle this? There, There is a line that says, I don't think we're wired to handle this. Um, the idea that it's happening, quote, too fast for our fledgling empathy. And I was watching a talk, Mary Helen, that you were a part of with Dr. Larry Rosen, where he was talking about how when something reaches 50 million people, it has penetrated society. 
And that the examples he gave, Daphne, you're going to laugh, are that television took a decade to penetrate society. The World Wide Web took four years. Then YouTube took one year. Then Angry Birds took 35 days. And Pokemon Go, Pokemon Go took 10 days to penetrate society. <laughs> When television took a decade, and it's like, is it running at too breakneck a speed? Maybe, Hillary, are we wired to handle this? Actually, I'd really like to hear what Mary Helen has to say about it. Oh, I mean, I, I think uh, we're not, but I would like I, to hear I, from the neurologist. <laughs> I, I, I think we're not either, right? We're, we're not either because, uh, you know, we, I mean, it's, it is the, 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 the parallel with food is, a, I think, a good one, right? We, we, at the one hand, we all need to eat and nutrition is, is essential, but also there are ways to design and market and produce food that will trigger evolutionary mechanisms that we have, like calorie hoarding and like a desire for sweet and salty things because those things and fat things, because those things are usually hard to get. And so, you know, evolutionarily they're valuable. So we're built into our biology is like, um, is to like those things. And we need to figure out what those triggers are for us socially and in terms of information accessibility, and then think about how do we, you know, manage the way in which triggers for those social access and, uh, and information gathering kinds of um, activities are, are really thoughtfully modulated and incorporated into the technologies we design mm -hmm. um, and really think about how our neurology is 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 evolutionarily primed to look for certain kinds of stuff and when that mm -hmm. stuff overloads us like hillary said it, it overloads us we're not we're not made for that we're not built for that and, yeah. and I think it's really um actually quite telling what the musical said about this being overwhelming our empathy or the same platform, the same um, gut visceral sensation that is, you know, telling us what we have a stomach ache, telling us what our heart's pumping and on which we conjure a sense of, of uh, agency and which is tilting our, our attention to look out or look in is also the platform on which we experience empathy. These things are incredibly multi-purposed, right? So we right. literally feel in our guts. One of our first studies um, showed that when people feel compassion in the, in the fMRI scanner to social stories that are deeply moving, right, they activate gut somatosensory cortex really strongly, right? And so we're using the platform of our own guts and viscera to experience empathy for other people. Annie, you even said earlier that like you find yourself trying to like fill the void, like you open up a tab or you open up your phone and then you're overwhelmed and you feel overwhelmed, but then you need something comforting. So you go to like, so you open up a different tab. And I know that, I mean, I personally feel that way all the time that I'll sit there scrolling looking for something, but I don't even know what I'm looking for. Like, what should we be considering internally? Like, if we notice that pattern of behavior, what should we be reflecting on in ourselves that, and, and digging deeper into and saying, like, there's something else going on here? It's really interesting, right? Because the first thing that that makes me think of is, um, so I, I also experienced that feeling a lot, right? And um, recently, 
it's come to my awareness that whenever I'm experiencing that feeling, it's because I need to literally look inward. I need to sit with myself and have a moment of stillness and like Mm -hmm. move away from the screen, move away from the external and like bring it back into like, whether that's meditation or like whatever other ways that I find personally help me bring me back to myself. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think about, again, if we like talk about what's technology's potential role in this, like a wonderful example of this could just be, what if my phone notices that I'm just like scrolling mindlessly and it sends up a little (laughs) push notification that's like, hey, have you considered meditating? (laughs) Hey, (laughs) like, you know what I mean? Like, hey, five minutes to go like read a book or something, you know, and like, how powerful that could potentially be. Like, these are the ways in which we can use things like, um, you know, the uh, responsiveness and adaptability of our, of our operating systems to like engage with us and, and augment our humanity. Well, I think it's also a question of like, what is it causing and what is it responding to? You know, the, the song that Henry, the gamer sings that when he gets to the end of the song and basically considers like whether he, I like, I wonder if I care about my life, if I'm spending all my time in this game and what does that say about me? And there's this moment of reflection that to me says like, okay, he sounds like maybe he's depressed, but is he depressed because he's spending all his time in a game or is he spending all of his time in a game because he's depressed? And then Hillary, I'm wondering if you have a thought. (laughs) I certainly do. I can tell you that 95% of the young people, they're either teenagers or young adults, mostly the young adults are 18 to 30, that 95% of them arrive and they are depressed. They often depressed to the point of suicidality, to self-harm, or just, you know, suicidal ideation, but they are depressed. And often going along with that, they're highly anxious and, and especially they're socially anxious. And it is just fascinating that, um, about after about three weeks, three or four weeks away from screens, getting exercise, eating well, catching up on sleep, being social, in other words, having some very important human needs met, <laughs> physical and social needs met, um, they're not depressed anymore. The vast majority of them are not depressed anymore. And so I I do think that certainly a depressed person might seek escape online, but I also believe that the online experience creates depression. I I think part of it, too, is the same platform that creates, you know, on which we conjure agency, right, is is actually uh, not being utilized in an active internally driven way by the person because it's being driven by the stuff coming at us that is expected that's you know flashy and that's grabbing us and pulling us in different directions and so it i think this is just a hypothesis but i think it's actually systematically undermining the perception of our own agency and another way to say i perceive that i have no agency and that feels bad is i'm depressed 
we could go into all of the things about, you know, we've barely touched on social media and how all of those comparative behaviors can lead to problems in self-esteem and an anxiety about this pressure to connect because we can, um, you know, the feeling that every voice is equal. So therefore I should assert my voice. Um, but also, you know, the things that we're seeing in young girls, especially on social media is the comparative nature and the depression that comes from that. And, you know, the anonymity of the internet empowering certain people to say things they would never say, which is what we see in the the dating app song, um, that no one would ever say that to another person face to face, but suddenly you're inside the internet and it seems safer to do that. Um, but with all of these things that are happening and the internet being the common denominator, you know, throughout the musical, there are hints here and there to combat, you know, these are recovering addicts. So there's the, you know, I left my phone in another room. I turned off push. I turned off notifications. I went grayscale. Are these legitimately helpful solutions? And as a way to close out, like, if so, what are your other helpful tips in curating a healthier technology diet? Well, one thing I would suggest to anybody is one day a week without tech. One, mm. uh, one weekend a month without tech. And one week, at least a year, without tech. It just will help to reset one's emotions and um, keep one reminded about life beyond tech. Oh, I agree. I, uh, my phone's off on the weekends, right? I, I, I can't. I just, but I, I also think I didn't grow up with it. I grew up running around in the woods barefoot, you know what I mean? And like running a farm. So it's like, when now I find it an imposition, I'm like, how, how dare you keep, keep pulling at me? Like, go away. Like, I was trying yeah. to, do my, you know what I mean? And this, my household, and I think what I always promote for parents and for everyone is it's off at night. Like, you don't get yeah. interrupted while you're sleeping. Um, that's mm-hmm. like a bad, bad, no, no ha- habit, although mm-hmm. Hillary would know better, but. Yeah. No, no, no. I completely agree. But the way you guarantee that is they cannot have screens in their bedrooms. That's right. Exactly. No, it gets left in the it gets left in the kitchen at night to charge, and it'll be there in the morning. Yeah. Ubiquitous computing, which is what you all are describing, of like your phone sending you notifications, your computer notifying you, like all of those things. Like that to me feels like another example of having built a really cool hammer, but not really thinking through what the uses of that hammer will be. And so like, and not thinking about the implications later on, on us as humans. For people who need to use social media for their job, need to use social media because they like social media. Like what is a good balance of using that social media or what are the best ways to use it healthfully? So there's social media for work and there's social media for your own entertainment, right? Your own just yes. personal use. And I think it's really helpful to distinguish between those two things. Mm. And if you're using social media for your work, I think I think you want to separate it out. So when you're using social media for for work, be at work. And if you are taking a break, take a break, but be at work. 
Try not to multitask with your own personal social media use plus your work-related social media use. And Mm -hmm. it's very important to take a lot of breaks from screens, not only for your eyes, you know, and your your physical health, but also your mental health. Uh, Screens are very demanding of our attention, and we start to use up all the glucose in our brains. You know, we've got to take Mm. breaks. It's like the break needs to be a break from a screen. I definitely pursue those and attempt those suggestions. Um, and I also just want to acknowledge that the particular and strange moment we're in right now where oh yeah, all of the world, yeah. uh, uh, with the exception of our essential workers, are likely home and mm-hmm. we're with our devices. And I yeah. think we fluctuate between them providing comfort and a barrage of bad news. But I, I just want to, for, for people listening who might not know the show... Uh, I want to instruct you to open, a, you know, a music app on your computer or your phone and just listen to the last song of the show, um, which is called The Fields. The first few lyrics of the song. Um, it's funny. I, I never retain <laughs> lyrics and I'm uh, trying to be a professional director, but these lyrics, they always stick with me. Beyond right and wrong, there is a field. I will meet you there. And I think right now, with all the access that I have to technology, I dream of standing in a room with seven other people in a circle and just looking at people and <laughs> touching their hands and taking a breath in and out with them. And I, I think I'm interested to see what this period of um, home and being with our technology and using our technology will do. And I'm, I'm hopeful that this time will remind us how how much we need each other. Um, and I also will take your suggestions and turn my phone off at night because it is waking me up at 6.30 in the morning. So um, fair point. Um, but yeah. this has been so informative and just um, eye-opening. You've made me think about things in the show that I've never thought about before for all of you. And Ruthie, thank you for leading us. This is Absolutely. So- thank you. Yeah, thank you. That's super interesting. It's great to meet you all. I just wanted to thank you all. Uh, I've I've loved this. This conversation has been amazing. And I I wish that more software engineers were blessed with this opportunity to talk to you all. (laughs) So I feel very lucky. If you do think you have a more severe issue, uh, there are mental health resources on the website bpn.fm slash wwt or whywetheater.com. Thank you all again so much. This has been such an amazing conversation. Why We Theater is a product of the Broadway Podcast Network. It's edited and mixed by Derek Gunther. If you like the show, subscribe at bpn.fm slash WWT or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review and tell your friends. Our theme music is by Benjamin Velez. Why We Theater is recorded in part on the traditional lands of the Wappinger and Lenape peoples. I acknowledge this land was unjustly taken from them and pay my respect to elders both past and present. Special thanks to Dory Berenstein, Alan Seals, Lee Silverman, Patrick Taylor, Tony Montaneri, Wesley Birdsall, Elena Mayer, and Suzanne Chipkin. 
For more resources for change, info about our guests, and more, visit us at whywetheater.com. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.